thank you again for the invitation to come along to your hands. Uh, I really like this church. The, the pews in it are really comfortable. So as I go on and on, I will not be thinking that you're uncomfortable, physically anyway, uh, uh, down there. It's a, it's a really good thing to have comfortable pews uh, in a church. And I thank you to the choir. There will be a, a crossover in my sermon. I, I might not point it out uh, if, I, if I forget to do that, but there will be uh, sentiments uh, of this message which cross over with what you've been bringing to us this evening. And last Yesterday morning we looked together at Genesis and we come again to Genesis in our reading, uh, this time from chapter 8. We're thinking about the establishment of the harvest, why it comes each year and its purpose of preserving humanity. And we want to come to consider this again this evening, this time from Genesis and chapter 8, reading from verse 20 to verse 17 of chapter 9. Genesis 8 uh, from verse 20, and I can read these verses uh, to you this evening. Let us hear God's word. Genesis 8 verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. 
and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I don't know if you've thought deeply or long or hard about the explosion of population that has occurred within the world and within the United Kingdom in the past 200 years. In 1800, there was one billion people on the earth. In 1920, there were two billion people on the earth. And in 2019, there is 7.7 billion people on the earth. And this population explosion has been replicated within the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom in 1800, there were 10 million people in the UK. Today there is 7 million people in the UK. Humanity is growing. Humanity is being preserved. And why is there this preservation of life within our world and within our nation? Part of the answer is that Medical abilities and supplies and developments have improved and progressed. Part of it is that fresh water has become more readily available in troubled places, far off places in the earth. Part of it is that the farming community is able by advances in technology and machinery to produce much more food than in the past. But beneath these visible reasons and these common reasons and these reasons we attribute to human ingenuity and and development, this is what our passage reveals to us and presses on us. The promise of God. He has promised that he will never again Destroy all living creatures from the earth. He has committed himself to preserving human life in this world. God has given his word that mankind will always be here. And this evening we want to come to think of this incredible uh, promise by God. And part of that is the harvest. As we will see the great promise given here that seed time and harvest, summer and winter, cold and heat shall not fail. Let us think of God's promise then of human preservation. Let's think of the source of it. How does God make this promise? Where does this promise emerge from in God's mind and God's heart? I judge that some of you are able to to catch the program Countdown in the Afternoon. 
You are at that stage in life and you have been able to manage your circumstances that you can make a cup of coffee at three o'clock in the afternoon while other people are doing the school run or in their nine to five job. You have the luxury of sitting back there with your feet on the sofa and watching Countdown. And part of Countdown is the conundrum. And in our verses tonight, we have a conundrum that I'm presenting to you. And the conundrum resides in this. God brought about the flood because he said in chapter 6 verse 5, man's heart is evil from his birth. But then God gives us the promise of the preservation of humanity for the very same reason in chapter 8 because man's heart is evil from his birth. And how do we square this? How do we solve this? How do we understand this? That God brings the flood on the earth because we are all born with original sin, born with sin at our birth which expresses itself in actual sin in our thoughts, words and deeds he brings the flood on the earth because of that but then after the flood he says I will never bring destruction on this earth again because man is evil from his birth surely the answer lies in this that God is saying that judgment will not cure us. The punishment of the flood did not change man's essential nature. You and I will always have this bias towards doing what is wrong and anti-God. It is the nature that we are born with and live with and express our trespasses with. So there is God and before the flood he says I will bring judgment on the earth because man is evil from his birth. But now after the flood he says there's no point in me repeating this. Judgment will not fix mankind. You and I however heavily we might be judged by God will not be changed by his judgment. So how can he live with us? How can the holy God live with himself? How can he allow humankind, each one of us who are born by nature as sinners, how can he allow us to live on his earth and receive his mercies? Our text tells us that he smelt the savour of the burnt offering. And as God viewed this sacrifice, which in his mind and his plan reminded him of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for sins, on the basis of that sacrifice, he makes this promise. I will never again destroy all living creatures from the earth. This is how the Holy God can live with us. This is how the Holy God can live with himself because Jesus' blood would be shed on the cross 
for human sin. Here is the source of this incredible promise by God that mankind, humankind, will be preserved. But there is a a second source uh, from God, and and this is his sovereignty, that that he is above all things, that he is Lord of all the universe, and, and twice over he says, I will never again. It's his choice. It's his decision. And he is so great. There's not a meeting. There's not a committee called. There's not a discussion. Mankind is not allowed to give any input into this. God sovereignly, as his way is, he chooses, he decides, this is the way I will proceed. I will never again destroy the earth. Boris, Mr. Johnston, should I call him, when he was canvassing to become Prime Minister, uh, you remember he was insisting that the UK, under his leadership and governance, will leave the EU on the 31st of October. And the journalists rallied around this and asked him how he was so sure of doing this. They pressed him and eventually, what was his words? It was... Eminently probable. That was the best he could do. It's not looking very probable now. But at the time, it was eminently probable. Man of power. Man of influence. Man of position. And yet that's the best he could promise. But here's God. The high one. The lofty one. The sovereign one. And he says... I will never again destroy the earth. We don't have a problem with people cleaning up the oceans, do we? Gathering up the plastic that floats around and cleaning up the beaches and, and, and the, the, the wildlife that be influenced by, by oil slicks and spills. We don't have an issue with removing vehicles which give out excessive emissions. But where our problem lies is that they never mention God. That beyond all the human effort and direction and concern is this promise of God which undergirds the whole preservation of mankind. I will never again destroy all living creatures. And what a response for us this evening in these moments as we sit in worship from our hearts to thank God for his promise to worship him for his mercy. Let's think secondly of the substance of his promise. God makes this promise, but how is he going to work this out? How does he manage this commitment to preserve mankind, humankind in the the earth? What does he use to fulfill his intention? 
And in this passage, there are are four elements uh, which he pulls together to secure and enable the preservation of humanity. One is fruitfulness, the harvest. He says that seed time and harvest, summer and winter, cold and heat, synonymous expressions, We talk about the the winter barley being planted now and it will be harvested in the, the warm summer. The summer and the winter. The cold and the heat. The sea time and the harvest will never fail. And we were talking yesterday about the the abundance which the farming community produces. It produces much more than what the world needs. Starvation and hunger is not down to God's failing in his promise. It's down to our mismanagement and lack of ability to store and distribute what is produced. On the Jeremy Vine show last week there was discussion about the the fruit that's rotting in fields in England. And there's no one there to harvest it. God is keeping his promise. The seed time and the harvest is part of his commitment to preserve humankind. But a second element in his commitment is the fear that's mentioned in verses 2 and 3 that he instills between humans and the animal kingdom. He puts a, a fear between us and them so that our lives will be preserved And mankind, humankind, will live on in the earth. And that fear is there. And it's expressed either by attacking humans or by running away from humans. Reporters out in the field, they have to hide behind trees. They have to use secret cameras to get pictures of the wildlife. There is that fear that God has instilled between the animal kingdom and human beings. My children love to hear the story about the the giant seagulls earlier on this year who nested above a, a pensioner's front door. And the pensioners couldn't leave their house for six days because the seagulls were defending their chicks against what they feared was an attack. This is a, another way that God has enabled the, the preservation of mankind. He has instilled this fear between the animal kingdom and humankind. A third way is the food. He, he widens the diet of mankind in these verses. Till now, they were eating vegetables, they were eating fruit, but God allows us to eat meat. We're not to eat it in a, in a savage way with the blood. We're not to eat it in a cannibalistic way, eating human meat. But he widens the diet, and so he enables the preservation of humankind with fruitfulness, and with fear, and with food, and then with family. He commands Noah and his descendants to be fruitful and to multiply and to be replenishing the earth. 
But you ask, why? Why does he do this? Why does he preserve humankind? Why does he want men and women to live in this world, on this earth? What is his ultimate reason? What is his primary reason in doing this? Well, one of them is that that his son, Jesus Christ, would come from humankind. Isn't that the, the, the biblical reasoning? That because mankind has sinned, the Savior must become human. If he's to be a representative, if he's to die in our place, then he must be truly human. In history, there is a, a, a useful phrase that that which was not taken cannot be redeemed. And it's emphasizing that Jesus came all the way, that he was truly human, that he took our nature on himself. And this lies behind the harvest, this lies behind the family, this lies behind the fear. That the generations would continue on the earth until the Savior, Jesus Christ, was born of Mary in Bethlehem. But now that Jesus has come, you ask, well, why does he still retain humankind on this earth? What's his reasoning now then? And his reasoning now is that he will call in his people to himself. That those whom he plans to save, he will gather in from each generation. And in each generation, he will have a people to praise his name at every harvest season and on every Sunday across the world. But isn't there a, a greater reason? Everything God does, he does not just for our good. But he does for his glory. And isn't he showing us in the preservation of humankind. Every humankind who is evil has evil in their hearts from their birth. We're all like the bulls that have the bias. The bull cannot roll straight. No human being can live perfectly. Each one of us have this bias towards sin and yet God. He preserves such creatures to show his heart, to show how merciful he is, to show how long-suffering, to show the depth of his grace. He sustains and blesses humankind to give us insight into him so that when we feel our sinfulness and our unworthiness, we come to him, a God of mercy, and long-suffering and patience. The source of this great promise, it is Jesus' sacrifice and God's sovereign word. The substance of this great promise, it's worked out in, in the harvest. It's worked out in the fear he instills. And lastly, the sign of this promise of God, the sign of this promise, 
The sign God gives to emphasize his promise, to give tangibility and visibility, to show his commitment is the rainbow. And I think the rainbow has been misunderstood as God's sign of his promise to preserve humankind. We get distracted, I think, by the colors. And we marvel at the colors, and rightly so. And what a fascinating phenomena that the rainbow is. There's rainbows on the moon. There's rainbows that last for eight hours. There's even a, a pink rainbow. The rainbow is fascinating. But it's not the colors of the rainbow that is significant to God's promise. Not the colors. It's the shape. And the shape is a bowl. And the significance of this is that this is a warrior's bowl that has been hung up. The warrior has retired. The warrior will no longer fight against his enemies. The warrior has hung up his bowl upside down on the peg. And God is saying to us every time we see the rainbow that he will never again fight against us in this way. Yes, there will be the final judgment. And every one of us will stand before God to give an account. But in time, it's a time of grace. It's a time of mercy. It's a day of salvation and opportunity to come to this God who will never again bring a flood against us. He has hung up his bow and weapon of war at this time. And we've got to go there, don't we? We've got to reflect on it. That this sign of God's mercy is misunderstood in our time. That if we did a survey in Crumlin or around Ballylagan or in Belfast or in Coleraine and asked people what the rainbow reminded them of, it would not be the amazing, incredible, Astounding mercy of God. But that's why it's there. A mercy we're to taste, a mercy we're to come to, a mercy we're to receive. The substance, uh, the, the source of God's promise. Each one of us this evening are only alive because of the death of Jesus. Isn't this what the passage is saying? That God smells the burnt offering and he makes the promise. It's the death of Jesus that secures the preservation of humanity. Yes, it has this wider dimension to his sacrifice. It reaches out into all and guarantees the preservation of humanity. 
But it's not that general blessing of physical life that we're to be satisfied with. Wonderful though life is, the death of Jesus can bring us that eternal life. I love the story that Jeremy Hunt, the, the other runner for Prime Minister, told about his father. You maybe heard this. His father was a, an admiral in, in the Royal Navy on an on a aircraft carrier. And one of his sailors had misbehaved. And the headquarters on the mainland, they insisted that Admiral Hunt sent the name of the misbehaving sailor. And Admiral Hunt sent a name. It was his own name. And the sailor's career was spared. Isn't this what God does? Isn't this what God does? We sin. We break his law. We deserve his judgment. But he takes it on himself. In his son, Jesus Christ. And you and I need to confess our sins to God. And you and I need to receive that one saviour, Jesus Christ. Whose death appeases the wrath of God. The substance of his promise. He promises means by which to sustain life. The harvest. Food. Family. By which the mankind will be preserved in this world. And we should reflect that generosity and kindness and charity. Which God exhibits towards us by being kind to the poor. But surely we have to ask ourselves, what am I doing with this preservation? He's keeping me alive. But what am I doing with this life? He's holding me up in this world. But how am I living in this world? Maybe you have a £4,000 bike in the shed. You keep the tires pumped. You keep the chain oiled. You keep the wheels polished. But you never ride it. What's the point of preserving this machine? And what's the point of God preserving us? Are we fulfilling his intention? Are we fulfilling the role he calls us to do? Are we fulfilling the purpose he holds us here that we will honour him and serve him and please him? What an opportunity for us this evening to lay aside the trash of our Christian lives and go out and dedicate ourselves to, to living our Christianity completely and fully. To put aside those hobbies that take up far too much of our time. And devote ourselves to serving Christ and fulfilling the purpose that he keeps us breathing in this world. And the sign of his promise. What a sign. And signs are 
are interesting. They're all over the place. They're for various reasons and purposes, but, but I think of a, a particular brand of sign that, that points to another sign. There's signs that point to other signs. I think of the, the three stripes coming to a, an exit on the motorway. And then there's two stripes, and then there's one stripe indicating the approach to this exit road. And the third, the third, the three stripes is pointing to the two stripes and to the one stripe. It's a sign that's pointing to another sign. And this sign, the sign of the rainbow, it's pointing to a greater sign. A greater evidence of God's mercy. A greater evidence of his long-suffering and his love. The rainbow is pointing us to the mercy of God incarnated in Jesus Christ. And just as we respond wisely to the signs on the road, we must respond to that supreme sign. Jesus Christ. Proper response is faith. Jesus said, This is the work of God that you believe on Him whom He has sent. We need to believe in Him. A proper response is obedience. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A proper response is imitation. Love one another as I have loved you. Let's bow our heads in prayer and let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this incredible promise of preservation that you give to us at the very start of our, our world. We thank you, O oh God, for the, the detail of this. We thank you for the mercy that we find here. We thank you for you looking forward to the, the sacrifice of Christ and on that basis of that sacrifice, granting mercies to all. We praise and worship you for this. And we pray, O oh God, that as we experience your preservation in our life and in our time, you would enable us to reflect on this and to respond to this. We pray that your mercy will soften our hearts, that your mercy will motivate us, that your mercy in Jesus will change us. Grant blessing, Lord God, at this harvest time to each one of us bowed in prayer in this moment. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.